It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 402. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Once a month, just about once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions. You can send in questions you'd like us to consider for a future Q&A show by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. I am joined this month, as I am often, by Bonnie Stahoviak to help us respond to questions. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave, and thanks to everyone who submitted questions. Once again, you have made me wrestle about ideas in my mind, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Indeed. Uh, We have more questions than we can respond to, so hopefully if we didn't get a chance to respond to your question in this episode, we will have a chance to do so in a future episode. And let's jump right in and tackle our first question here from Peter. Uh, Peter wrote in and said, I have a member of my team that is currently going through a very difficult personal time bereavement and a difficult divorce and split up, which has negatively affected his mental health. My question is around how much of myself and my time should I give outside of a work environment and the best way to deal with a team member who needs exponentially more time and love than other members of the team without affecting the dynamics at play. Any advice is gladly taken. Bonnie? Thanks for writing in, Peter. I can remember being really early in my career and finding out that someone that I worked somewhat closely to was getting a divorce. He did not report to me, nor did I report to him, but you know, we'd pass by in the hall and such. And I just remember in my young, early 20s thinking, oh my gosh, how hard would that be to go to work when you were dealing with such a difficult transition? And certainly you have empathy for this person, it sounds like, and I'm appreciative of that. Yet sometimes our empathy can get in the way. And I suspect that you're also aware of that too, by the way that you worded this question. One of your phrases, you said, how much should I give outside of a work environment? And if you meant that literally, as in outside of work, I would say very little. I would be very cautious about setting boundaries with, and you you said a member of my team, I'm assuming this person reports to you, but I would be very cautious about having conversations about this situation very often outside of a work context. And even inside of a work context, I would try to minimize the quantity of conversation, but certainly not the quality of conversation, because I would want to make sure that this person was aware of any resources available to them through the human resources department. Oftentimes, workplaces have parts of their benefits packages that allow for people to receive counseling. And I would want to make sure that the individual was aware of those resources available. And I also just have this sense that when people are going through difficult seasons, if the person's been very productive previously, and you anticipate that once they are going through this grief situation, that they're likely to return to a fairly productive member of your team, I would want to really emphasize flexibility and not have this be the time when I'm really hammering down about things that I might normally have high expectations around. I'd try to show some flexibility in recognizing what this person is going through. Another really 
important technique for me has been what I'll call shifting the direction. I do tend to be a pretty empathetic person. And so I, I, like, I want to hear those stories and I care about people. But that's not always necessarily appropriate in the work that we do. And unfortunately, if we if we get good at it, then we're going to encourage more of it to happen. So I would want to practice up at the person comes into your office. Oh, it's really it was a rough time. I, you know, got in an argument or we're going to go to court or whatever it is. And, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, I'm really glad that you're here because I actually wanted to talk to you. And, and that might seem like a cold transition, but what I'm trying to do is condition the person that our conversations really should be about our functions on the team, meeting our objectives, and that my role really can't be as a counselor. I couldn't fulfill that role as with someone reporting to me or even as a coworker. That's not something I could do. It's also not something that I will do. And so trying just to get accustomed, though, to shifting the direction. Another helpful thing will be if the person stops by your office and tends to want to have those longer heartfelt conversations, then I might just have, I, I probably shouldn't tell anyone this secret in case the audio of the show ever gets out. But when I've had issues like that in the past, I fortunately don't right now. But if I've had issues in the past, I would keep always in my top drawer, some sort of paperwork that needed to be delivered somewhere so that I legitimately could say, oh, you know what, I actually have to stop by and drop these things off and I'll need to talk to you later on or we'll need to pick this up later on. Just just so I have that as a, without being cold hearted, I have a way to keep those conversations to a minimum. It's not because I don't care. It's because I know that if I do care and I keep doing that, that both of us then aren't really going to be able to be contributing to the productivity of our department. And lastly, I did want to say you talked about spending more time with and, and spreading love with this person as compared to other members of the team. And just for me, I don't tend to worry too much about things like that because I don't feel like we need to manage our teams with equal percentages paid to each person. We need to, yes, be focused on outputs and outcomes and encouragement when it's needed. But I have never felt like if I have five people reporting to me, then it needs to be 20%, 20%, 20%. And I would personally feel uncomfortable if other people were putting those expectations on me, because things change. If somebody's new in the department, then they're, yes, they're absolutely going to receive a lot more of my time and attention. If somebody is a high performer, there are many, many studies that support really investing in your high performers. So yes, those high performers are likely to get more time and attention when that's helpful to them in their own work. So that would be another thing that 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 just doesn't necessarily resonate for me. But it's I think it's because you care that you worry about it. And I think that's a, a great thing that you do care. I, I'm glad you care about this person. And also glad that you care about the other people on your team. I'm thinking about what you said, Bonnie, in having some appropriate boundaries. And I was also thinking of uh, your colleague, Andy Stenhouse, was on the show a while back. I mean, I'll put a link for folks. And one of the things he talked about, and we talked about on that episode of handling grief and difficult situations when they happen inside the workplace or outside. And he really made the point that something that can be really helpful for people is having a sense of returning to a bit of normalcy and having things in the workplace be a stable, stabilizing force in people's lives. And so it's it's a complicated situation, as Bonnie's uh, articulated uh, so well. And yet, that may be also something to think about, Peter, is in addition to the care and concern that you have 
of also being able to provide that stability and being a place where there's a sense of normalcy in this person's life that obviously isn't happening on a personal level. I hope this is helpful to you in some way. Let us know what you found that was useful. And Bonnie, let's tackle our next question here from Mike. Mike writes, I'm about two months into a first-time leadership role at my company. I've really been enjoying your podcast, especially episode 257, How to Manage Former Peers, and 306, Five Steps to Holding People Accountable. That leads me to my question. One area where I've been struggling a little bit is walking the line between holding people accountable while not coming across as overbearing or micromanagerial. I'm a firm believer in trusting my people to do their work and not watching over their shoulder. But there's this part of me that kind of feels like holding people accountable in a small way is kind of being micromanagerial in a sense, which I don't want to be. Maybe I'm too new at this to be able to distinguish between the two. Any insight you might have would be very much appreciated. Mike, thank you so much for the question. Congratulations on the new role. Uh, No, I don't think you're the only person struggling with this. Even experienced leaders struggle with this a bunch. And we've all been led by that person who's the micromanager, right? And none of us want to be that person. And so the thing that really comes up for me on this is how can you be upfront with someone on expectations? I think it's a lot less likely that the check-ins and the accountability are perceived as micromanagement if, on the front end, you are really clear with that other person how often you're going to be checking in. And so when the delegation starts of whatever the project or the statement of work is, that's probably the time to have the conversation about how often I'll be checking in with you. And depending on the person and their experience and how often, how much you've worked with them before, That may be a very collaborative discussion. That also may be a very directive discussion, depending on that that person's level of experience. Uh, But I think you define that up front. And then when you do those check-ins once a day, once a week, once a month that are appropriate uh, for that person's level of responsibility, then it's less likely to be perceived as micromanagement because that person is expecting you to do that, and that's what you agree to up front. This, of course, begs the question, how often should I be checking in? And the two lenses that I think about when I'm delegating something to someone is, first of all, what's the visibility and importance of the work that they're doing? And then what is their, secondly, their experience level, either broadly or specifically in this area? So if the work is not something that's terribly visible or a huge, huge priority in the organization, I may check in with them a little less than I would for a project that's going to be for the number one customer. Same thing is thinking about experience level. If the person's done this six times before and they've had good results, I may not check in with them hardly at all until the the project's delivered if they're fairly experienced. Then again, if it's someone who's maybe experienced, but they haven't done this work, or they're new to the organization, or you or them have concerns that this is going to be a lot of new learning as they're going, that's going to be more check-ins, right? And of course, if it's a really new person who doesn't have a lot of experience, and it's a highly visible project, you might be checking in a lot, maybe even daily, maybe even doing some of the work with them. But those are the two lenses that I always use to think about how often should that check-in happen? And then if you come to an agreement up front with that person, or <laughs> you're pretty directive about it with that person, then it, you know, it's not micromanagement. And I think the other thing to be conscious of here too is 
depending on the visibility level, the work and experience with the person is sometimes B plus work is perfectly good. In fact, there's probably a lot of times in work that we delegate out that it doesn't have to be perfect. So part of this is just us as leaders letting go of it doesn't have to be exactly the way I would have done it. And so we we're thinking about that both in the context of the expectations we're setting and in the context of the feedback that we're giving and check-ins and experience level and all that. The other episode that might be valuable to you, Mike, is episode 117, which is the steps you follow in order to delegate work. And one of the key steps I talk about in that episode is spending that time upfront to figure out when those check-in periods are going to be. So I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone. As a leader, I really try to think about focusing most of my attention on the what and the why and leaving the how for the most part to take care of itself. Let me explain a little bit. When it comes to focusing on the what, one of the things that can be really helpful is defining what done looks like. What is the outcome that we're looking for? When this thing is done, what will the state of it be? What does done look like? And then as far as the why, I think too often we really miss out on opportunities to have conversations about why what this person is working on is important. It might be important in terms of the broader organizational mission or vision. It might just be important because the person has a special, unique strength that they're really going to be able to contribute to in this area. But if I ever focus too much on the what and miss out on the why, sometimes I'm missing opportunities to really help people feel motivated about the work that they do and have those important conversations. So many times, especially with managing younger people, There are many studies out there that just show how much young people today want to have a sense of meaning and significance in their work, and we can help them have more of a sense of that when we spend time having those why conversations. As far as the how, you know, I'm kind of a geeky person if that doesn't show up on the podcast, and so I'm recalling a time just recently. It's not the perfect example to this because the person I'm describing She reports to me, she's my administrative assistant, but in this particular instance, she was on a cross-functional team. So in that case, she really reported to the other people who were planning this event that was happening. But it did come up that she was going to be making some signs for some breakout sessions. And I knew that she had a spreadsheet with all the speakers' names and the title sessions and the times and all that. And I got all excited about reigniting my knowledge of Microsoft Word has the, what is that called? The... Oh, mail merge. And I thought, oh, well, you could take uh, yeah. the spreadsheet and then you could do the mail merge. And like, I could tell just from looking at her, she's like, and, and we know each other well enough that, you know, her eyes are like, yeah, I'm not excited about mail merge. I'm just going to make this happen. <laughs> I don't think anyone's excited about mail merge except you. <laughs> but I knew, though, that was if I had as a manager really tried to get in there and make her save whatever seven and a half minutes, which, by the way, would not have actually saved her because she would have had to learn it first and perhaps tweak her spreadsheet a bit. But you know what I'm saying? If there was actual time saved, I certainly would. If I was unwise enough to harp on that, then I would be taking away some of that motivation. So it's all about leading people so that they want to do whatever it is, the motivation is high, and also that you're able to tap into their own creative spirit, their own ability to think creatively about their work, and how they can best leverage their strengths in accomplishing it. Mike, I hope that's helpful to you. Let us know uh, what you do next. Our next question is from Roger. Roger wrote in and said, after a year in in an executive role, I was unsuccessful in continuing on a permanent basis. Episode 366, How to Move from Victim to Victor, was a great and relevant listen. 
What other advice do you or Bonnie have to ensure I navigate the next phase of my career journey? I'm still at the same firm, but I'm aware of the judgment on me, which wasn't about my performance in the role, simply someone else did better in the interview, and the need I have to make the next choice count. Also, I haven't been able to find good advice on how to best approach executive recruitment as an applicant and thought this might be a useful future podcast feature. Bonnie, I'll let you tackle this first. We are going to be doing an episode on this in the not-too-distant future, Roger, so more comment on this, and I know Bonnie will have some thoughts as well. Roger, first off, I just want to say that I'm sorry, and that might sound a little corny to say, but those situations are so hard, and and I, I just wouldn't want to try to attempt to provide some thoughts around your questions without just saying that to you, and oh, it's tough when we put ourselves out there like that and take these kinds of risks, and you did it for a long time. That's a long time to be in a role and then not see it move forward the way you had hoped that it would. One of the things I'm reminded of often is a children's book. I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I know it's been probably two years or something, which we've got lots of new listeners since then. And those of you even that were listening back then might be enjoying you know, a reminder of it. It's called Hope for the Flowers. It's a children's book, but I feel like it's it's a really an adult's book disguised as a children's book. And so the plot is that there's these two caterpillars and they're going right along and they see this big silo going up into some space beyond. They can't see it because there's clouds up there. And so they become really enthralled with, well, what is up there? And they begin to climb and begin to climb and begin to climb. And at some point, they start to notice some of the caterpillars are actually being squished and stepped on and even in some extreme cases being pushed off of the silo and falling below. And the yellow caterpillar, I probably might be getting my colors mixed up here, Dave, but you know, the story is still going to hold strong. And so at one point, the yellow caterpillar is just like, yeah, I'm not doing this and goes down to be on her own and the stripe. Oh, yeah, stripe because it's black and white stripes. So stripe keeps going, keeps going. And Dave, you remember this story. What happens when Stripe gets above the clouds to see what was there? Uh, is there nothing there? <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing <that> there. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing there. And sometimes I feel like, and you're not at all saying this, Roger, I'm projecting a lot of this stuff that I've got, you know, in my heart and in my mind on you, but we can get so caught up in that next level going up, moving up that once you get up there, there's really not that much there. And you were in that role. So you're already well aware of the realities of executive roles like that. But for anyone else listening who that's helpful, I just think that that book has been nurturing to me just in the sense of, I don't want to be focused as much in my career on moving up, I want to do what the yellow caterpillar then went and did. And she went and built her cocoon. And you know what happens when caterpillars wrap themselves in that cocoon and go through all that personal reflection and learning and turn into a butterfly. And I did want to say one other piece of advice, and that is that I would focus less on what's happening inside your organization and a whole lot more on what's happening outside. I would be wanting to build relationships with other people in similar roles as mine, perhaps some people who are in the next career step that I'm hoping to take, and building really what's known as a personal learning network. And I would be trying to think less about trying to move up in my organization, but just trying to be able to contribute more 
in any kind of organization. One of the things I'm really grateful in my own career, even though I've been working at the same place for 15 years, I almost feel like in some ways I get to feel like I work. I dabble in other organizations too. Because I have a podcast similar to Dave's, although mine is focused on teaching in higher education, but I get to have these conversations and hear about what a lot of different people and a lot of different organizations are doing. And I'm able to sit in meetings and as ideas come up, be able to give real concrete, specific examples of how other people in our industry are attacking a particular set of problems and challenges and have those examples to turn to. And I've really found that it increases my credibility and also my worth to my organization. So the other thing would be maybe it will be time for you to move on and go somewhere else and you'll have that network of people that you can be curious about and find out what's going on in their companies. And perhaps that'll be the next step for you on your career journey. Next up, we have a question from Allie. Allie writes, can you recommend an assessment that I can take for executive presence? Uh, Allie, uh, tough question. Uh, I don't know of a assessment that specifically looks at executive presence. If someone knows of one, you certainly are welcome to reach out to us. We'll get it to Allie. I'm not sure it would do you much good, Allie, though, even if there was an assessment for this. And the reason is, is because the term executive presence is one that strikes me like the term of leadership. Whenever I walk into an organization and someone says, we'd like to work on leadership development in our organization, and then I start asking some follow-up questions, and that word literally could mean anything, depending on the context and what's happening. And executive presence is one of those terms that is used, uh, unfortunately, as a catch-all for a lot of different kinds of things. So when people get feedback on this, which may be the reason you're thinking about this, is it may be something like how you show up as far as what you wear. It may be how concise you're being in executive meetings or in presentations. It may be your presentation skills. It may be your decision-making and your strategic thinking, or it could be a whole bunch of other things. So first and foremost, what I'd be curious about if you are thinking about this or if you've gotten some indicator or maybe even some direct feedback from someone that you should be working on your executive presence is seeing if you can find out what are the data points of where you should be zeroing in here. And if that's not clear, finding out from the people who have given you that feedback is a good starting point. And if you hear something like, hey, I'd really like you to be more present in a meeting or to show up with more executive presence, one helpful response to that may be, thanks for the feedback. What's a time you've seen me not show up with executive presence? Or what's a time that is reminding you of that from this feedback? And if you can get a specific example, then that will be a good indicator to you of where that person is coming from. And sadly, my experience has been when I've had conversations with people who have gotten this kind of feedback, is the feedback tends to be pretty vanilla and generic. They get said something like, you need to have better presence in the meeting, but that's about it. And when they ask for an example, sometimes they don't get it. So ask for an example. If you don't get it, though, one other thing that I found can be helpful is finding out who else is doing this well. So if you're having a hard time getting feedback, one thing you may ask or just notice in the organization is who else has great executive presence? And if you get some kind of feedback about this, you could ask that person giving you feedback, who is it that you notice that's doing this well that I could learn from? 
and maybe even notice that for yourself within the senior leadership team. Who tends to get airtime at meetings? Whose ideas tend to get traction pretty quickly? Who's the person that folks are looking to for decisions? Because chances are that person is exhibiting at least some of the things that the executive leadership team is looking for, that individual is looking for as far as executive presence. And then try something on. So if you decide, if you look around and maybe you've gotten some feedback or maybe you decide that you know the people who have quote-unquote executive presence in your organization are the people who are being really concise or coming to a meeting with answers or specific strategies already articulated, or maybe they're dressed a certain way in some organizations, that makes a big difference. Try that on. Test it out for a bit. Try doing that for a few meetings and taking on that role and see how that lands. And then you can potentially, after you've done that for a while, come back to the person who's giving you feedback and say, I've been thinking about your feedback. And here's uh, one of the areas that I've been moving on is I've been in recent meetings coming with more strategies, or I've been being more concise, or whatever insert skill you're working on here. And then seeing what kind of feedback you get from that person. And that often will generate the what's really going on. Because if you show up and you try something on and it's wrong, (laughs) and maybe you literally try something on because you're thinking like, oh, I need to dress a little differently and you try that and it doesn't work. And then you come back to the person and say, hey, I've been trying this for a bit. I'm trying to uh, show up a little differently. And, And they say, no, 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 that's not it. Oftentimes, then you'll hear some better feedback about what's really going on. So that may be a good starting point for you, Allie, just to start to flush out a bit of what is maybe being unsaid and testing some things out. And that way you start to learn and you create movement and you create traction in your own behavior. One of the other things I like to mention when people ask about executive presence is to recognize that sometimes people's perceptions about this are very gendered. And what that might look like is expecting that a woman should really only show up as an executive, I say in air quotes, and that if she takes on more traditionally masculine qualities. And even then we find out through the tremendous amount of research that's been done is that women, when we do try to take on some of these traditionally masculine characteristics, then we're being too bold or too bossy or too forceful or too aggressive or what have you. There are some studies that have been done where the exact same resumes, just the name gets changed out. And people who have names that sound like they might be people of color or sound like they might be women tend to not be the ones selected to come in for the interview. And again, even though it's the exact same resume, so that still does exist. And the reason I mention it is because when I was very early in my years of being at the vice president level, that came out a lot. I was the only woman on an executive team and I had someone else come to me and say, like, I I hear occasionally, you know, the feedback they're giving you, don't listen to them. I like that you laugh. And yeah, sometimes you laugh to try to soften some of the feedback that you're giving. And I think you should keep doing that. It's clearly worked for you so far. And I really treasured that person's feedback. I don't think it's helpful, by the way, if we laugh because we're nervous and we're doing it because we're too afraid to make bold statements. But at the time in the situation I was in, I think I was finding strategies that were helping me 
not emasculate other people and still get to make really strong, bold claims, but do that as a woman and as a woman who had some things to say in a team full of people that were all different than I was. So just, just watch out for that as you're thinking about executive presence. And Dave, if we can put in the show notes, I've really been enjoying the series that Tom Henschel has been doing on his podcast around executive presence. And I think that's something yeah. that he doesn't, I've never heard. I'm very very prickly about it. So I feel like I would have noticed he doesn't say anything in terms of things that would be very gendered and trying to get people to try on behaviors that just really wouldn't fit. Thanks, Sally, for the question. Let us know what you decide to do next. Our next question here is from Thomas. Thomas says, as I provide coaching and feedback for my reports, I often request feedback from our internal customers. In my most recent request, I received a 40% response rate, And I get a lot of typical boilerplate responses like, great work, keep it up. And sometimes people even cut and paste the same response for different survey questions. How can I develop better questionnaires to get more insightful answers? I've tried emails nearly pleading for more depth and insight to help the residents continue to improve their practice. Oh, I have so many questions for you, Thomas, and you're not here in front of us for me to be able to ask them. The, well, he does ask for better questions, so here we go. The biggest the biggest challenge that I see in these kinds of seeking out of feedback is what happens after the fact. And I believe it was Chris Arger, although I may have the researcher wrong, but they talk about double loop learning. And this idea that, you know, you're getting feedback, but then what happens with that feedback? And I think within my own organization, we have a service-oriented department that after they close a ticket for us, they'll just, just this automatic email comes into our inbox. How satisfied were you with the resolution to your concern? And I have never ever found out what is the average level of satisfaction. I've never had anyone say, oh, I'm so glad that that was helpful. I mean, there's there's been absolutely zero feedback that I've ever received on any of the inputs that I've given. So as you could imagine, when I see them come in now, I just press the delete key. And it's not like I feel like that department's horrible or anything, but it's like if I don't feel like that my feedback, I'm going to receive any kind of transparency around what, you know, the the overarching feedback looks like and what are the steps that this department is taking to improve things and what strengths are they looking to build on? What are they celebrating because they're doing it so well? I never hear that. And so if your internal customers are never hearing back from you about that information that you're gathering, that could be why you're seeing such a low response rate. It also sounds like you are asking a lot of questions. And I'm really intrigued by the net promoter score. Just as an example, how one question in that case, would you recommend this service to somebody else? That one question is actually in many contexts, way more powerful than going and starting to ask about the different attributes of a product or service. Did you find the price okay? Did you find it? Could you find us from our map? Did it get to you on time? Was it, you know, helpful to get set up or whatever it was? That net promoter score is a powerful one. A lot of organizations have adopted that. And I'm not necessarily saying you need to go use that particular instrument and go, you know, pay for their consultants to come in and help you implement it. I'm saying get your question down to perhaps just one question, the most important question, have it be a binary response. 
and start to then report back out of the information that you're gleaning. And then you can find some of the more rich nuance to the data that you're collecting. I also was a little bit concerned. And I mean, I don't know your position. I don't, I don't know what your reporting structure looks like that kind of thing. But I did wonder if you had any skin in the game. And if you ever try these kinds of feedback mechanisms for yourself as a leader, and I'm thinking back to speaking of one questions, the question around what's one thing I'm doing, that's holding me back from being a fill in the blank, is it a more effective speaker, a more effective leader, a more effective writer, whatever that is. And I think it would be really helpful for your team and for your internal customers to see that you also are willing to put yourself in a situation for rich, strong, sometimes hard to hear feedback like that. And I would hope that as a leader, you're also including yourself in these forms of feedback. It can be wonderful modeling for the people that report to you and have them feel like this is not just you, you know, coming down from from on high to to say, you know, I'm going to show you all the things you're not doing right. But let's look together at ways we could all be more effective at what we do. There's something that flips a switch in some of our minds when we're designing surveys that we need to have 15 or 20 or 25 questions and make them as thorough as possible. And to Bonnie's point, I think often if we can make this way more concise, the better. By the way, there are, this is absolutely a science. There are people and organizations out there who are masterful at helping organizations do better at this. One of them is Ken Nowak, who was on the show last year talking about assessments. They do tons of work around helping organizations understand data more effectively. So for those of you who are really looking for an expert, that's certainly a great place to start. And I'll put a link to him in the notes. But even if you don't have those resources, something like SurveyMonkey or some of the survey organizations out there that have wonderful web platforms, they have fabulous documentation on how to create surveys and how to keep things, be very mindful about not biasing your survey in all kinds of different ways and how to keep it concise. And to Bonnie's point, one of the questions I love, and I've asked this of our audience, some of you have received surveys from us. I often, when I send out a survey, it will just ask one or two questions. And the question I love is, what are you struggling with right now? Almost everyone has an answer to that question. And you can often find out something really significant just by asking a question or two. And then to Bonnie's point, there's some sort of loopback that comes with that. What did you hear? Did people hear from you what the survey responses showed and get some feedback from you? And then is there a next step or maybe a question of what did we miss? You want to get engagement so that you can really move the needle forward. Thank you, Bonnie. For those who want to do a deeper dive on some of these topics, several related episodes that may be useful to you as well. One of them is episode 117, How to Delegate Work Effectively. In the question from Mike, he asked about how to prevent micromanagement. There's some really helpful strategies in that episode that will not only help you with that, but also to help you to frame delegation in a way that's going to be useful to you and also the person you're delegating to, to get the results you want. Episode 117 is a detailed overview of that, if that is something that's top of mind for you. Also valuable will be episode 142, The Way to Lead After Workplace Loss. Bonnie's colleague, Andrew Stenhouse, was on that episode. We mentioned it earlier in the conversation around how to handle loss when it happens, perhaps in the workplace, but also perhaps in someone's life personally outside of the workplace. And Andy has a really wonderful background, both in academia, but also in counseling and as a pastor and was a grief counselor as well. Really a tremendous breadth of experience and 
brings a lot of practical wisdom there for leaders who are in a situation where they are dealing with grief or loss in all kinds of different ways. Episode 142 is where to go for that. Also helpful potentially to Roger and others who are thinking about broadening your professional network outside of just your organization and maybe even a bit outside of your industry is episode 209, Get Return on Investment from Professional Associations. John Corcoran, a longtime friend and multiple-time guest on the show, talked in detail on that episode of when you join a professional organization, what's the best way that you can leverage the value of your membership in order to build relationships with others? Professional organizations in many of the industries that a lot of us are in, as our conferences, are wonderful places to begin to build those relationships. And there are so many great things that we can do that most people never take the time to do. And if you're willing to put forth the investment of a little bit of time and strategy in building relationships and serving people well, it can serve you as well in so many wonderful ways. Episode 209, I've referred to many people over the years have found that extremely helpful. Also, what may be helpful if you are thinking about assessments or survey design and you're looking for a little more perspective on that, as I mentioned in the response to Thomas's question, also perhaps looking for an expert who can help your organization to do that more effectively. Ken Nowak was my guest on episode 371, Get Smart About Assessments, that episode it'll provide you with an overview of some of the details about assessments. And also, Ken's a wonderful resource for those of you who are looking for that kind of direction, uh, since he's an expert in the space and has been had tremendous success in many industries, helping them to use surveys and assessments successfully for organizations to get a lot more valuable data. And finally, I'd recommend episode 386, Unconscious Mistakes Women Make with my guest Lois Frankel. Bonnie mentioned in the response to the question about executive presence that there are often gender dynamics at play there, particularly for women. And in episode 386, Lois and I talked of some of the strategies that women can take in order to minimize some of those gender imbalances. And Lois is just a fabulous expert in this area and has so much practical advice in all of her books. Episode 386 is a great place to go for that if you're looking for more direction on what to do next. All of those episodes, of course, you can track down on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you don't already have a free membership established on the site, you can do that really easily. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com set up your free membership. It's going to get you access to a whole bunch of things. One of them is my 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. You get access to that immediately. In addition, you get access to the entire podcast episode library since 2011. And more importantly, you can search by topic. So if you're looking for all the episodes we've done, for example, on Executive Presence, you can go in there, search for Executive Presence, and you'll pull down everything on the site, plus my own personal library, a ton more resources, the book notes, everything. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and you'll be off and running with us to discover a lot more. Have a great week, and I'll see you back next Monday. Take care.